Menno Middle got you down? Crush your sugar cravings with delicious, all-natural Bossa Bars from Menopause, created to help women manage weight loss and energy during the pause. Try them at bossabars.com and save 10% every time with code KD10. Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women who are unafraid to age out loud. I want everyone who is listening to think of a number. I want you to take a second and make a guess about the dollar amount that was spent on alcohol in the U.S. in 2020. Say that number in your head. Okay, you know I'm not going to leave you hanging. Here is the answer. $222 billion. Billion in one year. And yes, it was a terrible year, but still, that number is crazy, crazy big. We live in a culture awash in alcohol. My guest today is somebody who walked away from alcohol and addiction and now helps others do the same. Lisa Smith is a recovery coach, author, and the host of the podcast, Recovery Rocks. She wrote the acclaimed memoir, Girl Walks Out of a Bar, which recounts her descent and recovery from, quote, high-functioning alcohol and cocaine addiction in big New York City law firms. If you or somebody you love is struggling with alcohol and addiction, if you are sober curious, or if you simply want to make smarter decisions before you uncork that next bottle of wine, stick around. This show is for you. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here with you. I'm so happy you're here because this is a topic I've been wanting to cover for ages. Um, can we sort of start at the beginning, hear a little bit more about your story and what made you take on recovery as a field, both as a coach and an advocate? Sure, sure. So my story is actually, I uh, am a former practicing lawyer and law firm executive. And in uh, my first year of practice as a junior associate at a big law firm, uh, I became a nightly drinker. And that I was self-medicating and there were other factors, but that led to a 12-year spiral downward, Um, very miserable, very, there were sort of two parallel spirals going on through those 12 years. You know, you go through one that is the physical of, of, you know, eventually feeling, having to drink physically by the last 18 months I had to drink to get out of bed. And then there was the emotional one which is where you're in a lot of, or at least I can speak for myself, I was in fear and ashamed and I didn't tell anybody. I had this kind of terrible secret. I felt like I was living a double life. And eventually it all crashed down, but it crashed down in a way that I was in charge of. I didn't have a DUI. I didn't, you know, get fired from my job. I was doing quite well at my job. I was not practicing law at that point. I was in uh, administration, in client development. And um, I was fortunate to one day actually realize and say to myself, I don't want to die this way. And I reached out for help. And from then I was able so far, knock on wood, that was about 18 years ago. And, um, in, and I didn't talk about it professionally. I talked about it with my friends and family. Um, but I, you know, I went through my own recovery journey and part of what I did to explain myself to my friends and family, and also to explain myself to myself was to start writing in the morning, kind of my story, what happened, 
how I felt, all of those things. And it was just very cathartic. And I would do that in the morning before I went to work. I never stopped working. I was the director of client development um, at a big law firm in New York. And then after 10 years, basically pretty, pretty early on, I realized this could help the next person. I felt so alone in my drinking and in that miserable spiral and afraid. I knew it wasn't just me. And I was fortunate to be in a position where I could speak up and raise my hand and say, you know, this is what, uh, what happened to me. And I want to show you that if you decide to stop drinking, uh, there is a great life on the other side of it. So that's really a nutshell. That's amazing. Um, but I can delve into anything else you want. Yeah, this is. Uh, so when you say 18, is it is so is that 18 years that you've been sober? Yes. Yes. Congratulations. That's an incredible, incredible milestone. And, Thank and, you. And, and one that um, probably felt very far away at one point when you were having to drink to even get out of bed in the morning. So how did you go from that, from from being in that place to um, getting started on the road to becoming sober? Did you do it yourself? Was it a traditional 12 step? Tell us a little bit about how that worked. Sure. So I was the, uh, as I mentioned, like it was 12 years going down and it went from drinking every night to drinking more and more each night to really realizing I couldn't, you know, I needed to drink at night. I couldn't not drink at night. And then it's funny because it's very powerful in our society. When you talk about those numbers of, of how much alcohol is sold, uh, that, I would, you know, rationalize it. If you had my job, you'd drink too. Um, you know, this is how I relieve stress so that I can go in and deal with the office tomorrow and deal with, you know, whatever else is on my plate. And eventually it took me all the way down, which is further than a lot of people go down. And I was at a point where I'd wake up in the morning and open my eyes and just think, oh, I wish I hadn't woken up today. And then it was a morning that I was, there were also drugs involved in my story, um, that I was on my way to work. It was a Monday morning. I was all put together. I had uh, checked my teeth for lipstick on the way out of my apartment in New York City. And I suddenly became overcome with something. And in that moment, I thought, oh my gosh, I've overdosed. I'm having a heart attack. I'm going to die. I now know what I had was a panic attack. But in that something snapped in that moment and said, you don't want to die in this hall. You don't want to die today. You don't wish you didn't get up and you're going to have to, you know, do something. And I knew I was sick enough to need a medicated detox. So that means that I was physically addicted enough that it required hospitalization in a, in a detox unit and uh, medication in order to avoid any heart attack or spikes in blood pressure that could be dangerous. Uh, physically. So I was there for five days and um, I couldn't believe the difference in how I felt physically, but also there was, there was a lot of relief. And after, while I was in the hospital, they said, oh, now you'll go to, um, you know, here's the places you can go from here. You can go to uh, this 30 day rehab, this place has horses, whatever it was. And I said, oh, no, no, I have to go right back to my job at the law firm because I will not tell them this. 
uh, because again, the stigma is brutal and we're working on it. But, um, you know, I had all the shame around it and I was not going to share it with my office. I was afraid that I would have walked out the Friday before being considered like a, a reliable, competent, um, you know, smart member of the team. And that somehow if I went to treatment, my secret would be found out and I would no longer be regarded that way that I would be looked at as somehow damaged or defective or weak, possibly amoral, you know, certainly not reliable. And I wasn't willing to risk that. So I refused to go to treatment. And that's part of why I really suggest why, why speaking out is important to me because people should feel free to go to treatment. It's the best way to do it. If you can, if you have the resources. And um, so I went immediately into, I went right back to work, which they did not recommend, but I did it. And I started going to an outpatient um, intensive rehab two nights a week. And I started doing 12 step right away. And I still do 12 step now. Um, what, that sounds like such a journey. And it's amazing that you were able to you know, put yourself back into the office and, and put your game face on and really make that work out. And um it's, do you feel that you needed to kind of get to this sort of rock bottom place before quitting? When you look back at your journey, I know you just shared that working in a recovery program might be, you know, an inpatient recovery program might have been more ideal. Um, but is there a better time to off ramp when somebody's on the journey? If someone's listening right now and thinking, you know, kudos to Lisa, but I don't want to get to that place, you know, w- right. what could you have done differently or what, what should a listener be thinking about, you know, when, when should the interventions begin? I think really the way to think about it is if you are seeing, and you kind of have to check in with yourself because it can be easy to rationalize things and, and cover things up. So it does, so people around you aren't able to offer you help. But if you're, if you kind of tune into yourself and ask yourself, maybe, I mean, the, the, um, the pandemic has just, there's been a huge increase in drinking and in drinking habits, right? So if you were someone who used to go out for cocktails with your friends a night or two a week, and now you're doing it three or four times, or you used to come home and unwind with a glass of wine, but now it, you know, for a while it was two, now maybe it's three, you're seeing a change in your pattern. It's good to question that and ask, why is that happening? Is that happening because I like wine that much more this week? Or is it happening because I'm trying to self-medicate some anxiety and stress that is uh, going on right now. And if that's the case, then you can sort of ask yourself the next question of what do I want to do about that? Is there a better way that I can find to, um, you know, to unwind or to de-stress or to deal with some issues? And maybe it's therapy. Maybe it's, you know, really just deciding I don't like how I feel when I wake up in the morning after I've been drinking, it wrecks my Saturday. If I drank on Friday night, I'd rather not. And if you are in open to those kinds of things now, (laughs) as there was not 18 years ago, there are, there's a ton of support of all kinds in different places. You don't have to be, you don't, you know, there are wonderful um, women who are, just making the choice. You had mentioned the term sober curious at the, at the beginning of this. Yes. And it's true. There's a whole movement and there's a huge, incredible industry of zero proof um, drinks that are not, you know, that are, that 
that you can have instead, but also just, you know, questioning why, you know, alcohol is the only drug that society asks us why we don't take it. Yes. And maybe you can spin it and say, you know, instead of why aren't you drinking? Maybe the question is, why are you drinking? Right. And just being more conscious about it. And, you know, listen, are you, are you drinking tonight? Because that red wine goes really great with the steak and you really appreciate it and you enjoy it. Or are you drinking tonight because you want to get out of your head? These are such phenomenal questions. We're, we're heading into a quick break, but when we come back, I want to continue to explore this with you. Great. We've all seen red light facial masks all over Instagram and beauty spas and dermatologist offices. But did you know red light technology can also rejuvenate your pelvic floor, not just your face? As we age and lose estrogen, our skin, vagina, and intimate tissues get dry. The result, painful sex, more UTIs, and increased bladder leakage. I've experienced all three. And let me tell you, they are zero fun. And it doesn't have to be this way. Meet Joy Lux, a sexual health and wellness company founded by women for women. Joy Lux offers a red light home use device called VFIT to rejuvenate your pelvic floor. This revolutionary device promotes vaginal wellness, natural lubrication, improves strength and sensation, and increases confidence, all from the privacy of home at a fraction of the cost of in-office options. Get your confidence back, reconnect with your partner, Take charge of your intimate health. Who doesn't want easy-to-use at-home care? Sign me up and spread the word. Joylux has an exclusive code for certain age listeners. Take $50 off the VFIT with code Katie50. That's K-A-T-I-E-5-0 for $50 off. Head to joylux.com for the love of your V. Lisa, we headed into the break. You shared some wonderful questions to ask yourself. You know, am I drinking because I want to? Why am I drinking? You know, how do I feel about my drinking? Um, and we, we talked a little bit about this this concept of being sober curious. And I, I would sort of put myself into that camp. You know, you, you mentioned red wine and steak, and I'm like, I love red wine. Anyone who's listened to the show has heard me talk about it. But as, I, as I've gotten older, I have begun to second guess my relationship to alcohol. You raised a great point. I have been drinking more in the pandemic than I had in the past, and I'm not comfortable with that. And I've seen other people in my life, um, you know, really struggle with alcohol. So, um, you know, I'm I'm curious about what you think about being sober curious. You know, do you recommend people try this on for size? How do you feel about baby steps like sober October and dry January? Do you think taking a break is a good idea or do you think if you take a break that maybe um, the break should be permanent? Where, where do you land on, on kind of half in, half out? Oh, I think it's a great thing to explore. I think we should be really, I think sober curious is such a great term. And it's actually, if anybody's interested, uh, my friend Ruby Warrington wrote a book called Sober Curious, um, which is all about this. And um, it's, it, it, it's kind of asking yourself the question, not, not is it so bad, but is it good enough to keep it around, right? And that can be, um, I would say absolutely, uh, dry January, sober October. If, you're cur- if you just want to get curious about your drinking, you know, why you are, what, you know, how much, whatever it is, under what circumstances, and um, that's a great way to do it. I would even say, you know, with one of the things that happens with, I think, 
things like dry January or sober October. They're great guideposts, but anytime you're feeling curious about your drinking, try and just take a week off and see how you feel. Right. You know, it's all so personal because, you know, a lot of people, it is great that you love red wine and drink red wine safely. I can't drink that safely. Um, And for some people, they may experiment with sober curious and say, yeah, I really still love having my wine, you know, my glass, even if it's my glass of wine in the evening, every night, if it's something that fits your life and isn't impacting your ability to do the things you want to do and enjoy the experiences you want to experience, um, then I'm all for it. I think it's just a question of, is it giving me, is there really the benefit here um, that, that I, you know, I'm willing to say, Hey, I'm going to go out with my friends and drink, you know, seven margaritas on Friday night and I'm okay. I'm going to be hung over Saturday and I'll get through that. That's great. You know, it's all so personal. Um, and the, the question of like, what is it that fits for you? If you're going out and drinking those seven margaritas, you know, twice, three times a week. That's not so good. Not so but, good. I, it's probably not even so great on, on one night, although I do love a margarita. But, I, you know, to have seven drinks. I mean, I, you touched on something where you said that alcohol is the only drug where people are questioning you when you're not taking it. Like, hey, you're not drinking tonight. Why? You know? Why? And, and right. we wouldn't be saying that to other people. And, you know, alcohol is so baked into our culture. You know, you see this, like, drinks after work and and, um, you know, like mommy juice. And it's become like, you know, you, 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 there's like everything has alcohol related to it, it's, it, which is kind of amazing, which I think must make it really hard to, uh, you know, walk away from it. I'm, I'm curious. You said that a big part of your experience with, with uh, alcohol was a sense of shame. You used that word and that mm-hmm. you didn't want to share your story with your work. But you, yet you then went on to write a very well-known uh, book, Girl Walks Out of a Bar. It was covered in People magazine. So mm-hmm. what happened when you shared your story? Did you ha- have a sense of release? What, what was, did you, how did people react in your life? Um, well, my friends and family all knew that I had been writing for a long time and I was at, um, at a law firm that I had been at. It's funny, you know, we talk, sometimes you hear the word high functioning alcohol addiction or things like that. She's high functioning. He's high functioning. Um, and so I had been what you might call high functioning, but you really are only high functioning until the day you're not. So for instance, for me, that was the day that I thought I was actually going to die. And, um, and so nobody actually at my office had known, you know, what it was. I was considered somebody who went out for drinks, you know, with people from work. So when I came back, I just kind of, um, you know, kept it to myself. And then I found 10 months later that when the other piece of high functioning is that you may be high functioning, but you're not functioning at your potential anywhere close. Like if you're hungover three days a week, you're not functioning at your potential. And when I got sober, I suddenly realized I could take a job about two levels higher than I had taken, than I was in at that time. So I moved firms. And when I went to the new firm, I didn't mention that I was sober for about a year because, you know, your story is your own. You don't, nobody's entitled to know it unless you decide to share it. Um, And so I just kept writing. They knew I wrote, but they didn't know what it was about. Um, 
I would, because I would go on writing retreats and things like that. And when somebody would ask me, so tell me what, tell me what your novel is about. And I would say, it's actually not a novel. It's memoir. It's about a challenge that I had that I think, you know, sharing my story could help somebody else. Then they all of a sudden get quiet and they're like, oh, that's great for you. Okay. Next topic. Nobody wants to dig in too deep on that. And then, um, so then I had been at that firm as the director of marketing for 10 years and they knew me, they liked me. I, you know, I was doing great night. In fact, just gotten promoted to be the deputy executive director of that firm, which came with a seat on the management committee, which is the most powerful committee in the firm. And so as soon, it was almost as soon as I got on the management committee, I got my book deal. So, you know, people had known that I was writing, they didn't know what I was about, but I had to go knock on the doors of first the management committee partners and, you know, sort of see how they were going to feel about it. And, and how so did they feel? I, how did they feel? So the first, I'll tell you, like the first one that I went to, I knocked on the doors and it was the chair of the firm. And I said, Hey, you might've heard, I got a book deal. I shut the door. Or And he said, yeah, that's great. We're excited. I shut the door and I said, now let me tell you what it's about. And so I started telling him and, you know, I had felt like I had to fill the air, you know, but I was really high functioning. I never got arrested, blah, 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 all this stuff. I never got fired. Um, and he stopped me in the interim of it and was at basically while I was babbling and said, listen, you know, I think this, we all know people um, who struggle with this. And I cannot tell you what the response of every individual partner at this firm is going to be. But I can tell you that from the perspective of the the firm overall, you have 1000% support. And that was huge. And then I, um, I kept sort of talking to people. And what I realized was that they would all interrupt me. And most of them would say, oh, you know, my cousin, my brother, my law school roommate, my kid. And um, it wasn't in the way that they were just sort of patting me on the back. Like, that's good for you that you got sober. It was because people were curious and ready to talk. Like one partner said to me, I'm so glad you brought this up because my brother-in-law just got out of a rehab and he's coming for Thanksgiving. Is it okay if I serve wine? Like people have questions and I realized how much this touches everybody. And that when I got that response, that was so, yeah, this thing you've been sweating in your head forever, you know, and, and, and I'll say it was behind me. I was 10 years sober at the time. They knew me for 10 years. So I felt particularly confident going into them. Um, but it, it really opened the door to me thinking, wow, I could, you know, I, I could do something here to try and help break that stigma because if, if people just aren't talking about it, not because they think it's so shameful, but they really don't know what to say. And they have questions. What a wonderful response from that partner. How, how fabulous to be created with that level of support. And, and you know, you were I, incredible. It's so wonderful. And 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 I agree that this is something that touches everyone. I mean, that number I shared at the beginning of the show, I think is astonishing. $222 <laughs> billion in alcohol sales. Yeah. And you know, here's another kind of astonishing number as well, is that there's $40 billion in tax revenue. So, you know, um, 
as as a country and a culture, we um, are constantly going to be a- a- advertised alcohol messaging because it just generates so much money. So it's not remotely surprising that when you started sharing your story, you started hearing other people's because it's definitely out there. Um, and it's oh god, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. You go. Uh, and it's particularly pernicious for women because alcohol companies target women. Right. So when you mentioned mommy juice, yeah, there is a very intentional, and it got worse during the pandemic, a point of saying, you know, hey, we know you have a stressful life here. Here, let us help you relax. Right. Yes. So I remember seeing it got worse over the pandemic. I remember seeing in a big box store, um, there was uh, a, a big sign that said back to school supplies. And it was sitting on top of a pile of cases of wine. Oh my gosh. That's insane. Well, you know, I walk into liquor stores now too, because as I said, I drink red wine. And when I go to buy it, I've noticed the feminization of alcohol. Exactly. So there are these beautiful, I mean, beautiful packaging, you know, yeah. there's like rosé, you know, in a can with like beautiful flowers and vines and all the wine bottles look like stationary, you know, I mean, it looks like, and it's very, you know, it catches my eye because I, I love I love pattern and I love color. And it's like, sure. a, you know, and they've really feminized it in a way, you know, because they're helping. They're, they're, this is how they're driving sales. It sells. Right. It totally, right. It totally sells. So, you know, you you launched a podcast, which I, I talked about at the top of the show, Recovery Rocks, which is a great name. I went through your and I, I love podcasting. So I went through all of your shows and all your show titles. And I saw that you did an episode called The Best Skincare Routine is Sobriety. And this totally cracked yeah. me this totally cracked me up. And by the way, it felt very motivating. I was like, yeah, I've done two shows on skin and nobody mentioned not drinking. What are some of the other surprising benefits to being sober beyond better skin? Oh, beyond better skin. Well, first of all, um, I look for me, and I think for for people, a lot of people who don't necessarily go as far down the scale as me, you just feel a different kind of, there's less tiredness. You sleep so much better. Sleep is so adversely affected by alcohol. And so many of us can't sleep. And then we're sort of, we sort of feel like, oh, you know, let me have a drink. I'll fall asleep. That's going to wake you up in the middle of the night as you're processing that sugar. And there is, you know, so you are not in fact going to sleep better. You might pass out quicker, but you're not going to sleep better. And um, there is something also that a lot of people experience, and I used to experience this very profoundly, which is um, with a hangover comes an increased level of anxiety. We actually call it hangxiety um, that, that accompanies, I mean, part of it, I think, is that sometimes when we drink too much and we wake up in the morning, we're wondering, oh gosh, you know, I hope I didn't sound stupid last night, or I hope I didn't say the wrong thing or whatever it is um, that can make us anxious, but also physically it, where our nerves are jangled when we wake up like that. Um, So if it is, you know, it's also that for me in a 12 step program, you know, it's interesting for anybody who is familiar with 12 step programs, only the first step mentions alcohol, right? Every other step is about basically, you know, figuring out your thinking so that you don't feel compelled to turn to alcohol. So, you know, I am able to, um, without drinking, and I think this would come, you know, I, I think you gain more confidence when you just decide you're not a drinker anymore. And there's, there's something very empowering about that. 
Sure. You're, uh, you're, yeah. You're owning, you're owning yourself and, and, and having that clear head that, that the, you know, less anxiety and you probably have more money, frankly. I mean, oh, you know, forget it. My income doubled. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious. Uh, you also did a podcast on your sober toolbox and that caught my eye because I love a toolbox. You know, I'm very into, <laughs> I love whatever kind of bag of tricks one can pull out and put into action. What's in your sober toolbox that that you can share? Oh, okay, great. So sober toolbox. Yeah, it's just the way what we go to our go to sort of and it's funny because I just would say with the skincare thing, I would have never done an episode of skincare except my millennial podcast partner is obsessed with it. So this is what happens when you podcast with a millennial. Um, that's a that's a good my, that's a good po- podcasting buddy to have. I'm we're into skin, yeah. we're into skincare, so that's fun. Yes. Um, so in my toolbox is typically what will happen. I deal a lot with, I, I was diagnosed when I was in the detox with major depressive disorder and an anxiety disorder. And I do what, you know, I would normally do. Like if I had diabetes, I'd see a doctor who specialized in it. I would take the medication that doctor prescribed as prescribed. And I would make the lifestyle changes like diet, exercise, sleep, that that person suggested to keep my condition in remission. Mine is a brain disorder. So I need to do, you know, just another organ in the body and I need to do those things. But also, you know, there's moments where you, where I will be feeling like it's a panic attack. I'm going to be, I'm freaking out about something. I'm nervous. I'm stressed. I'm dreading something. And one of the things that I find most valuable in those moments is to just plant my two feet on the ground and, you know, say, okay, let me, let me center myself right here. Where are my feet? Right. What's so what is, what is really happening here and what is not. And typically my feet are in a safe place on the ground. There's, you know, food in the fridge, money in the bank. Not, the world is not about to come crashing down. That's a story I'm telling myself. And I learned to tell myself different stories than, um, than, than what I did before when I was drinking, where I was living in a lot of fear. So I will go to that kind of just a grounding for a moment. I'll meditate. I started um, taking long walks, which I never used to do. And now, you know, that will just help me get out of my head. And I have to say my favorite way, my favorite thing in my sobriety sobriety toolbox to help me from spinning is to reach out to another person and just see how they are doing. When my head is a bad neighborhood, it's really great to get out. And I can do that just by calling somebody else and saying, hey, what's up? Listening to what's going on with a friend. Um, those kinds of things that your head is a bad neighborhood is something that's going to stick with me that because <laughs> yeah. we've, we've all been in that bad neighborhood, you know, like it's, it's really interesting that um, you know, the stories that we can tell ourselves, the things that keep us awake, the things that that make us nervous. I love this notion of grounding yourself and saying what's really going on. Where am I? How am I doing? And choosing a new more optimistic, more powerful story. Because sometimes I, I think we forget that we can choose the stories that we're telling ourselves and that we're responding to. Thank you for reminding us all that. Um, what happens when your friends or your partner aren't sober? I know you talked about your law firm partner who said, my brother-in-law is coming over. Can I serve um, wine? You know, how, how does this work in your own life? What do you recommend to our listeners who might be thinking, I want to support somebody. Do I, I need to stop drinking myself? Do I need to check myself in some way or change my behavior? 
Uh, that's a great question. And I really think that it's a conversation, right? So I was very, uh, or my, my close friends who are in the book who went through the whole thing with me are still my close friends today. And, you know, when I got out of detox and when I got sober, you know, we used to go out and drink on the weekends. That was our, you know, that was what we did. And I was in a place where, um, you know, they said, whatever we can do to support you, what, how can we help? And I said, really, the thing I have to sort of be the own, the, the uh, gatekeeper of my own recovery. But uh, what you can do is be there to listen to me when I want to talk about it. If I'm not, so for instance, you know, they said, okay, we're going to dinner Friday night. Um, you're going to come. And for me, I, I knew that if I went to dinner with them, regardless of whether or not they were drinking on a Friday night, I would get triggered. So I would say I had a, you know, I had to watch for myself first and I would say, you know, how about we go, I'm not going to come to dinner with you, but let's go to, you know, let's go to the museum on Saturday instead. So finding different things to do with someone, you know, has gotten sober is big. Um, it is very personal, really how they feel about other people drinking in front of them. Like I can tell you for me, I, um, from the, the day, and I wrote about it in the book, but the day I came home, you know, my parents, my family always had cocktail hour and they picked me up from the hospital after five days in the detox and nobody knew what to do. And they were like, well, it was cocktail hour. Uh, should we, can we drink? And I didn't know anything. And I said, yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to be in the world where people drink, go ahead. Um, and they did, but they didn't know that somebody fresh out of sobriety really, or fresh, you know, out of, out of that situation really shouldn't be watching other people drink. And so, um, they, you know, I kind of went through it with no guideposts. I would say that you want to check in with the person for sure, but also just kind of, you know, using your better judgment, put yourself in that person's place. You know, if they had just gotten out of uh, detox and um, or if they've, you know, recently been fairly newly sober, you can ask them, is it OK? But you can also just sort of take an initiative and, and say, why do I need to drink tonight if this person isn't drinking? Right. You That's know, such if great. It's your, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was no, no. Say, I was, go ahead. Keep going. If it's your partner, it's something else. Right. Because then it's sort of the rules of your house. How are you going to deal with this? And for example, my husband, I met a year and a half into recovery and he drinks, but he is like a total lightweight one drink. I mean, I tease him when I see what he drinks. I'm like, that is not even breakfast. What you're doing right <laughs> there, dude. Um, but he, you know, we, and he was living in Connecticut at the time that we met and I was living in New York city and we would go back and forth, but the way we did it was uh, there was booze in his house in Connecticut, but I was more than a year sober and I felt okay with that. Um, but there was not alcohol in the apartment in New York. And so when he was in the city, if he was staying in the city and he wanted a drink, he could go out and sit at a bar and eat dinner and have a drink at the bar, you know, whatever it was, I didn't want it in the apartment. So you really have to kind of figure out ground rules 
um, if you're living with somebody who is in that situation. That makes so much sense. And that's that's great advice. How, how does, um, we, we're, we're sort of nearing the end of our time, but I do want to explore one area before we move into our speed round. How does aging in midlife impact sobriety? You know, do you think it's gotten easier? What do you hear from women in midlife who are struggling, who might be thinking, you know, wow, I didn't realize that this was becoming an issue for me or, you know, I can't imagine reinventing myself at this you know, phase and I'm kind of just stuck being a, a drinker. How does aging impact this in any way? Um, that's a great point. Aging, actually, I found I was sober. I was th- I was 38 when I got sober. I'm 56 now. And uh, at 38, my friends were sort of aging out of the kind of drinking thing. They were starting to have kids. They, you know, just your tolerance generally gets kind of lower and you feel worse as you get older. I think you feel worse after drinking. And so it was actually a pretty convenient time for me to do it because all of a sudden I looked around and I was like, wait a minute, I'm the, I'm the one drinking the most anyway, these guys don't even really, you know, care that much the way I do. And I had, and it's it's interesting because it had been my identity, right? Like what I drank, what was I, if I wasn't a drinker anymore? And, you know, the answer is, uh, you're someone without hangovers. <laughs> you're someone, <laughs> you know, you have better skin. Uh, for me, I lost weight. You can make more money. You know, there's stuff like that. Um, but also in general, I think it's just an easier social environment because I don't think people really um, flinch. And it's not it's not as much like you're going out to bars to meet people or that's how everybody hangs out. Um, I think that there is, you're never too old to decide, you know, to be sober. I know people who got sober at 70. Um, it's just a decision of how you want to, um, you know, how you want to feel each day. And a lot of, you know, I mentioned meditation and sort of grounding myself in the moment is really just thinking about what is this doing for me right now? And, um, you know, it's interesting because more and more people are not drinking. It's much more common now. Like when I got sober, it was a big secret. It was AA or nothing, whatever. Now it's like there are sober, there's non-alcohol bars. There's all kinds of non-alcohol companies. Like there's sober music festivals. There's all kinds of stuff. And they're not just for sober people. They're for people who want to enjoy something with and and are, are okay with not drinking. Right. This um, is so fantastic to know about all these resources, which is another reason why people should be following your podcast and um, your, uh, reading your book to learn about these things. We're going to move into our speed round, Lisa. These are just quick one to two word answers uh, that I ask all guests to close the show. Yeah. Okay. Recovery has taught me. Humility. Creating the podcast Recovery Rocks is beautiful. I love it. Sober celebrity you admire. I'm going to go Bradley Cooper. Nice. Okay. A book or podcast that the sober curious should explore. Sober curious with Ruby Warrington. Fantastic. Favorite non-alcoholic drink. Uh, Crisp and crude mellow mule. Ooh. Best way to celebrate a sober versary. Little splurge gift. Nice. Finally, your one word answer to complete the sentence. As I age, I feel. Grateful. Nice. I didn't think I'd be 40. So this is all gravy. 
Amazing. Amazing. That's, you know, it, you've had such an incredible 18 years. You're making a difference for other people. You've given me so much to think about. I I have so enjoyed this conversation. I, um, I'm going to explore more of your podcasts as well, because I, I, I love hearing uh, people share their stories. And, it, you know, this is something that is touches everybody. And um, you've given us a lot to think about. So I really appreciate your time. Before we say goodbye, though, how can um, my listeners keep following you, your work, uh, learn about your podcast and your book? Sure. Um, so my website, I, I do a lot of speaking and um, things like that in the legal profession, particularly, but in general, and for women, my my website is Lisa Smith Advisory with an O.com. And my handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Girl Walks Out. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for having me. This wraps A Certain Age. Join me next Monday when I talk with author-illustrator Wendy Knox, who creates art and storybooks that remind us it's never too late to soar. Thank you to everyone who's already signed up for our May Zoom book club. We are reading Find Your Unicorn Space by A Certain Age guest and author Eve Rodsky. You can sign up by emailing me at katie@acertainagepod.com. Want to stay on top of other book events and new episodes? Sign up for our free weekly newsletter, Age Boldly, over on acertainagepod.com, or follow the fun on Instagram at acertainagepod. Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time, and until then, age boldly, beauties.